got so quiet. All right, welcome. I think most of you know I'm Dennis Taylor. And uh, this December, I was privileged enough to be uh, asked to join the leadership team here at First Baptist. So we knew we were going to have some breaks in uh, teaching and preaching and sharing the gospel. So the team got together and we came up with a very intricate method to decide who was going to be doing it this week. We drew straws. I lost. Actually, I volunteered with one stipulation that I could preach from the scripture that I picked. So uh, one other thing before we get started here. Uh, you remember, anyone here when they heard me preach back in June? One voice in the wilderness. Okay, and you might recall that I said something about my powers of memory not being what they should be at 75. Well. At 76, they haven't gotten any better. So I was going today to follow my notes in my iPad. I forgot my iPad. <laughs> Fortunately, I printed everything out, and it's on my phone. But I printed it in case we had a power outage and I was off internet. But my iPad is sitting back on my desk, so I apologize for that. So, let's say something. So I said, eight months ago, I had the, the privilege of sharing the gospel, and I t this will not be a repeat of that. There will be no fig trees, no bicycles today. So what I'll be preaching about is forgiveness and healing. So let us start in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're so privileged to be able to call you Father. And as a Father, you give us guidance, you give us wisdom, unfortunately, us being mere mortals, we don't always follow. We also are so thankful for your book that has given us a roadmap to how to live our life. But most importantly, we're thankful for your son, Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. So again, I, I apologize for this old school thing, but anyway, let's get started. So anyone here been watching The Chosen? All right, good, good, good. So I'm not going to give away any spoilers. Anyone into the second season? Okay. Well, the fourth episode revolves around what we're going to be talking about today. It's from the book of John. And John, according to John, was the favorite disciple of Jesus. But he was also write two of my favorite uh, verses. He would write today's and John 5, excuse me, 1, 5. So today I'm going to be in John Five, one through eight and a half, because I won't be finishing the whole verse nine. So I'm going to read. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which was surrounded by five colored, covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him laying there, he learned that he had been in this condition for a long time. He asked him, do you want to get well? 
Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. So just a warning ahead of time is that we're not going to be taking a very straight path to get to our end today. It's going to be very curvaceous. So just, just bear with me and hold on. So let's dive into the pool, so to speak. There's some very interesting things about the pool. Number one, there are actually two pools, and they stood side by side. The sheep gate that was noted in the scripture was just that. It was a gate through which the sheep went when they were headed into the city of Jerusalem. To me, that sounds a bit like Buck Highway during Heritage Days. <laughs> but one of the pools was used to wash the sheep prior to taking them to the temple for sacrifice. The other was believed to contain certain properties within the water that would heal anything from anybody if they were the first person in the pool once the water was stirred. Now I just read John 5, 1 through 8 and a half. My Bible does not contain verse 4. Would you look in your Bible, see if you have verse 4? If I was in a one, I could memorize that verse really quickly. Brenda says no. Anyone else? No? No? No. So where is the fourth verse? It's one of the curves I spoke about, and we'll be straightening that out momentarily. It also says in verse 7, when the water is stirred. Now, if you watch this chosen episode, season 2, verse 4, excuse me, episode 4, the stirring of this water, it appears it's a water park, and there's tons of people that are trying to jump into the water. So how was the water actually stirred? Well, there's several opinions on this that I found. One of them is that the pool of Bethesda was fed by an underground spring. And when that spring would overflow, it would bubble up from underneath and would cause a disturbance on the waters above. The second theory is that the other pool, the one used to cleanse the sheep, was periodically emptied into the healing pool. So who knows what properties were in the pool then? But with the additional water coming in, of course, it would disturb the water, it would stir the water. And the third is found in the mystery of verse 4, the missing verse 4. If you have a King James Bible, you will have verse 4. I just happen to have such a Bible. <laughs> I'm glad you asked. It was given to me March the 1st, 1952, by my grandmother, the most godly, gracious, wonderful human being ever to walk. Now, I will admit that when I was five and a half years old, I did not read this. I'm 76. I still have not read this. But I was going to read this... Mysterious verse 4. Unfortunately, the printing is so small, I'd have to have a, mag a, a magnifying glass. So instead, I printed it off. And what it says in King John, verse 4, For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whoever then first, after troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatever disease he had. I'm going to save to the end for this. So why is this verse missing in modern Bibles? 
Well, some biblical scholars say that the verse was not in the translations at all until the King James Version was published in 1611. Others believe it may have been on the margins of some of the scrolls or some of the manuscripts. Others say it was just completely missing. The Greek manuscript did not have it whatsoever. And it was actually added when they did the King James Version. In the majority of Bibles written during the 20th century, the passage was removed, supposedly for the sake of authenticity. The truth is, nobody, nobody on earth that is, knows for sure. So let's climb out of the pool and move on. So anyone here ever been angry? All right, good. I'm glad we got participation. Okay. Because if nobody had, I might as well step down now. So how about the person who cheated you? How about a person who lied to you? How about somebody you had an argument with? How about that Coke machine you put a quarter in? How about that Coke machine you put $2 into and you didn't get your drink? Now, we can get mad at any time, at any place, but being in the car is an excellent place to get angry. How about the guy that cuts you off in traffic? Somebody tailgating you going up Red Mountain Pass. I'm sorry Jeff isn't here. How about that one parking spot at South City Market? You've got lined up, somebody pulls in in front of you. So... How does it feel when you're angry? Doesn't it feel like you're in the right and the other person is certainly in the wrong? Feels pretty darn good, doesn't it? At times, it can actually give you an adrenaline rush. Is it any wonder there's so many fights when somebody gets mad? Ever watch a basketball game? It's not uncommon for a fight to break out. It's almost like hockey without the ice. So with this rush of adrenaline, you feel immediately stronger, like you're almost invincible. But what about that rush subsides and that feeling of superior begins to fade away? I heard someone once say that holding on to anger is like sucking on a piece of hard candy. You just don't want to let it go. You want to get every bit of pleasure you can out of it. So when we're, when we're having these feelings, we feel we're in the right. In fact, we know we're in the right. You know, we've been wronged and we're justified in believing so. So let's just pause for a minute here and kind of get rid of all these negative thoughts I've put in your mind. So what's the other side of that coin? What's it like to bow down and admit we were wrong? Or worse, have to offer up an apology? That feels just the opposite. We're humbled, ashamed, humiliated, maybe even imagine ourselves as being seen as weak. So is it any wonder that it's easier to stay mad than to bow down and admit we are wrong? So how long can a person stay angry? I'm gonna tell you a little story here. Uh, when I was about 12 years old, uh, I got in an argument with my mother, probably one of the dozens I had. And I'd venture to say probably every single parent in here has had some type of argument with their child. Well, mine went something like this. She'd either told me, take a bath, pick up your room, don't you dare look at me that way, you know, 
whatever it is. It was 60 years ago, so I don't remember. But I do remember saying something really stupid. I'm never going to talk to you again. How many times have we blurted out something as ridiculous as that? I also remember it wasn't long after this argument that we were in the living room together, sitting in this big chair we had in the living room, had our 18-inch black and white TV on, watching Ed Sullivan. And I can't be sure, but I think there were some Russian folk dancers, a guy twirling plates on a stick, and a juggler. Because wasn't that virtually every single Ed Sullivan show, except when the Beatles were on? So that anger passed very quickly between my mother. Somebody came forward, probably her, you know, offered, you know, the fig leaf. Oh, I said fig, I'm sorry. And uh, we went on our merry way. So in this case, I said it was over quickly. But what about if a group of people are angry at another group of people? That could be something totally different. Here's another story to illustrate. So when I was working for FedEx, one of the things I did was I would travel across the country and I would speak at uh, conferences that had small business owners. And I would talk to them about how they could get into the FedEx supply chain. And I just once by myself, there's representatives from other major companies, uh, from Aflac, from Hewlett Packard, from American Airlines. And one such fellow that also was doing this was a guy named A.J. Klein, who worked for American Airlines. And A.J. and I were about the same uh, about the same age, and we'd see each other about once a month when we'd be on these speaking tours. And I asked him once at lunch, I said, AJ, what's your real name? And he says, I got no idea what my parents were thinking. He says, I was born at the end of the war, and they named me Adolf. He said, you cannot believe the names I had to endure going through school being named Adolf. He said, so by the time I got to junior high, Adolf was gone, and I was AJ. Anyone that met me, I was AJ. So he goes on, he tells me about a conversation that he had when he was in college in New England in the 60s. He was dating this girl, and they were becoming you know, pretty serious, and she wanted him to come down to Atlanta to meet his parents and his grandmother, who lived with his parents. And AJ, oh, sure, I'd love to do that. So he relates the conversation that kind of went like this between the girlfriend and the grandmother. Grandmother says, so, sweetheart, what's your young man's name? And she says, Grammy, he is named after the worst person to ever walk the face of this earth. And she says, so, sugar, when is Sherman going to be here? <laughs> so this is in the late 60s, over 100 years since Sherman had led his Union troops through the South, but this girl's grandmother was still angry. Now, within the congregation, we've got a couple Southern gentlemen, at least. One sitting right down here, Brian Chapman, and another one down out on security, Matt Lee. So if you have the courage, you might ask them after the, we dismiss what they think of Sherman, and then run. So when does anger turn into much, something much worse? When does it turn into a disease called hate? Now, anger is only a part-time job. Hate is a lifelong career. Anger is not hatred, but a burning hate 
does require the lit match of anger to take hold. And if there's any sense of injury to develop, it'll turn into a raging fire. And anger passes over time. Hate, on the other hand, stays and eats into the ability of somebody to be rational. It doesn't depart with the passing of time, and some people take it to the grave with them. Unfortunately, last month, my youngest brother was laid to rest. And he took all his bottled up hate to the grave with him. He was determined not to let go of it. And he told me numerous times of individuals that he'd felt wronged by. Some had been dead for 30 years. But he was not going to let go of that. The worst part is he had not spoken to his only daughter in several years. He'd not seen her or his only grandchild in 10 years. Cause of all this, money. Some stupid disagreement years ago over money. Now my brother and his daughter are not wealthy by any means, so the amount had to be something insignificant. But for whatever reason, he could not man up and say, I'm sorry to his daughter. Now, lest I give you the impression that he was a miserable human being, at his funeral, there was an overflowing of wonderful stories about his kindness to the many people that he befriended. So it's obviously he had goodness in him, but for some long ago disagreement, he and his daughter were separated. So how many people are hurting because they can't say something as simple as, I'm sorry, forgive me for my bad. We don't learn to get angry. It's a response that needs a trigger to start, but hate is a choice. So anger is instantaneous. It can happen at any time. The constant anger towards somebody leaves no room to let that feeling fade, and it can lead to hatred. Anyone here have any kids say, I hate school? <laughs> ah, some honest people right here in front. Of course, this is a typical child exaggeration, much like my, I'm never going to talk to you again. But it's sad to live a life of hatred. You're never at peace with anyone or with yourself, and you feel really heavy inside. Hate makes you resent anything that could be good. When you get angry, it's just natural, but don't hate. Hate can cause so many more problems and so many issues between individuals. Being as hateful can be as devastating as any physical illness. I've heard of anger management, and I suppose there must be a hate management, but I've never heard of it. But we all know who can conquer any task if we simply ask him. The great healer is, of course, Jesus. James 5.15, and the prayer of the faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. <clears throat> this means even a sinner like me. So in the summer of 1967, I'm 21 years old. Courtesy of the United States Marine Corps, I find myself 8,000 miles from my home in Long Beach, California. 
I'd be relocated to a place 20 miles southwest of the city of Chulai at a place called the Batanga Peninsula in South Vietnam. Strange as it may sound, I found myself assigned to a battalion of the Republic of Korean Marine Corps. And two days later, embedded into a Korean Marine Corps combat infantry platoon as a forward air controller. And with the exception of our unit moving 50 miles north in January of 1968, just in time for the Tet Offensive, my life for the next year would be of days of patrols and extended missions. During that year, dislike grew to anger and anger blossomed into full-blown hatred. Without going into detail, over the course of that year, hatred would be my constant companion. Hatred of a country and every single individual in that country. When my enlistment was near and I rotated back to the States, I brought something back with me that I'd not taken the year before. I brought home a belly full of hate. Fortunately, I was no longer, as the saying goes, in country. And no longer the presence of those individuals that I'd grown to despise. And when a person's young, going to college, starting a career, getting married, having kids, you know, hate can step aside for a while. Your mind is occupied with other things. As time changed and the 80s came around, numerous imports were restricted. Excuse me, numerous import restrictions were dropped. And soon merchandise from that far off place, 8,000 miles away, started pouring into stores here in the States. I think you're also aware that I'm a huge movie buff. So it probably didn't help that any time that during this time, films like Apocalypse Now, Deer Hunter, Platoon, Full Metal Jacket came out. Films that I obviously should have avoided, but like the moth to the flame, I was drawn, drawn into them. And my old pal and I were doing just fine again. So here's an example that played out many times. I'd be in a uh, REI, Sports Authority. I guess those aren't around anymore. Target, you name it, any type of store. I'd go and I'd see a rack of shirts. Well, I see what this one looks like. I'd pick it up and I'd see the label. It would say, made in Vietnam. I'd freeze. I'd drop it. It'd fall to the floor. Shirt, rack, everything. I wouldn't bother to, pick, to bend down to pick up that filthy rag. My hands were not going to touch that. I'd turn and walk away. So it was okay if World War II vets are driving VWs and Toyotas, but I wasn't buying one thing from that place 8,000 miles away. That just was not gonna happen. Psalms 147.3. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up his wounds. Now in addition to constantly dropping merchandise on the floor, there's other, other, several other things that triggered this reaction in me. Melissa and I are in California, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, and she's going to uh, go in the strip mall and have her nails done. So I said, okay, fine, I'll go in and I'll, 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 I'll wait for you. As soon as I walked in there, I just went into full-blown combat mode. All I hear is Vietnamese language from the ladies that are doing the nails. I said, I've got to get out of here. I go out and I sit in the car. A couple years later, 
know, I wasn't satisfied with just being, you know, an expert fly fisherman and a competitive mountain biker. That's a joke. <laughs> I decided I was going to be a competitive golfer also. So I had some golf clubs, and I said, I'm going to buy a new set of clubs. I'm going to buy them from TaylorMade in Carlsbad, California. Now the package arrived. I was excited. I opened the box. I take it out, and I look at the 7-iron. They're on a shaft. Made in Vietnam. I put it back in the box. I get on the phone. I call TaylorMade. I said, I can't accept these. He said, well, there's something wrong. And I explained to him what my situation is. He, he says, fine. I thank you for your service. Send them back. I'll send you clubs made from another country. So 50 years after coming home, I'm still hating an invisible enemy and in the unlikely event that there's still any individuals that I may have encountered that wanted to do me harm, the reality is they're old men, just like me, just trying to get by. So the man at the pool had been paralyzed 38 years. My sickness had been tormenting me 50 years. Here's the point where our path straightens out now. So five years ago, when I read John 5, 1, 8 plus, what hit me hard? Do you want to get well? Pick up your mat and walk. So what Jesus was saying to me at that moment was, leave your past behind and get on with your life. So Jesus has the power to forgive me as well as heal me if I just simply answered his question. Do you want to get well? Now this is the second time in my short walk with Jesus that he had pulled me out of the darkness. My favorite passage is John 1.5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And one more appropriate verse. Matthew 3.1-4. through 4. Jesus saw their faith. He said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. So in John 5, we see a man at the pool that Jesus healed. He'd been waiting, and Jesus came and healed him. So we learn from John 5 to expect miracles from Jesus. Do you want to get well? Because if you do, you may need to step out of your comfort zone, take a leap of faith, and venture out into the unknown. Anyone here like peanuts? I don't mean the eating peanuts. I mean good old Charlie Brown peanuts. Yeah. So what's his pal Linus always dragging around? His sister would say, that stupid blanket. If you're determined to hold on to what you've got, you may be closing the door on the possibilities that God has in store for you. So here's the question Jesus is asking us today. Do you want to get well? It's a question only you can answer. And you can start by asking yourself, what do I need to be healed of? What's the stupid blanket that I'm dragging around? Maybe it's anger. Maybe you've got a habit you want to get rid of. Smoking, drinking, eating. Or are we living like the man at the pool in an as-soon-as life? As soon as the water bubbles, I'll get off my mat. 
As soon as I get in the water, my life will be better. As soon as I get into the water, my problems will be fixed. Now, we all know what that's like, and we probably said out loud to one another, as soon as this happens, everything's going to be great. I'm going to be happy. My problems are all going to be gone. I'll be satisfied. Everything's going to be great. But at the pool, Jesus didn't help the man get into the water. He comes to him on his mat, the same mat and the same situation the man so wants to escape and speaks words of life and resurrection. Get up, pick up your mat and walk. The man doesn't leave his mat. It goes with him. His circumstances are real. The difference is that he now carries them. They no longer carry him. So Jesus doesn't change our outer circumstances. He changes us. So my end question is, do you want to get well? Now, one thing before I end, I didn't want to say this previously, but my mind goes strange places when I'm reading scripture. And when it talked about in the King James Version about the troubled waters, that strike a chord with anybody? Simon and Garfunkel, bridge over troubled waters. I challenge you, look up the lyrics and you tell me if it's not biblical. I just didn't want that musical worm going through your head while I was up here. So, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.